On this episode of This Week in Linux, well, we've got an interesting episode. It's just jam-packed. We've got new app releases with Nextcloud 20 and GIMP 2.10.22. We've also got some app building news with Python 3.9 has been released, and also a much-welcomed update related to theme support in Snaps. And there's also news that AMD is reportedly in talks to acquire the company Xilinx. We'll talk about that and what this can mean for them. We'll also get some get into some legal news to discuss the lawsuit between Google and Oracle because it has now reached the Supreme Court. So this could be good and also catastrophic, and we'll talk about that. Then we'll round out the show with an update to the Kubuntu-focused Linux laptop. All that and much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Welcome to episode 120 of This Week in Linux, a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux network. I'm Michael Tunnell, and if you're new to the show, this is the show that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world. And I'll give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Before we get started this week, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping. So first of all, we got the new DestinationLinux.network website. If you haven't seen it yet, it is a brand new site that I I got done last week, and I think it is quite good. Uh, Let me know what you think in the comments below or on the forum for the Destination Linux Network forum, which you can go to dlnforum.com to check that out. I'm actually working on a new store as well, so the DLN store is going to be revamped pretty soon, hopefully in a couple of days or so. I don't have an actual estimate for that one, but it's going to be revamped too. But if you haven't seen the latest Destination Linux Network website, you should definitely check it out by going to destinationlinux.network and see all the cool special effects that I did, especially like the particle effects thing. Just hover your mouse over that and you'll see some cool stuff on that too. So there you go. And also let's talk about frontpagelinux.com. If you're not familiar with Front Page Linux, this is a fantastic website that has news, articles, tutorials, videos, and all kinds of stuff. And if you haven't checked it out before, you definitely need to do that now because frontpagelinux.com is just fantastic. This is also a part of the Destination Linux network. And what's really cool about this is that in addition to having all this great content, it's also an open source philosophy-based website. So if someone, if you want to contribute to it and make articles or tutorials or anything like that, just get in touch with us at frontpagelinux.com to get that started. So yeah, there you go. And also we have some more stuff to check out like the Twitter and Mastodon accounts that if you want to follow me to learn more about things that I'm doing throughout the week or when there's changes for the show or for the channel or for the network or anything like that, then follow me on Twitter and or Mastodon. Each one, you basically the same equal amount of uh, stuff that I use. So you'll have I'll find links for both Mastodon and Twitter in the show notes below and in the, dis- in the description for the video. The first in the show this week is Nextcloud 20 has been released. If you're not familiar with Nextcloud, it is kind of like an alternative to Google Suite, the G Suite kind of thing. So it has like file syncing, similar to Dropbox, but it also has like Calendar and it has Context app and it has a bunch of other stuff. And there's also a lot of new features and, st- and related to the latest release that we're talking about is just in a second. But first, let's do a quote from Frank Karlicek. Uh, Sorry if I butchered that name. Uh, Nextcloud CEO and founder. Nextcloud Hub 20 is a dramatic step for users, bringing the different platforms they use during the day into an integrated experience. This can reduce friction, improve reaction times, avoid context switching, and ultimately bring greater productivity to our tens of millions of users across the globe, all the while protecting data security and digital sovereignty of of private and enterprise users. 
So this is an interesting update because there's a lot of stuff I've been looking for and waiting for, and this release does have it. So we'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, they have a new dashboard that's available. It includes over a dozen widgets ranging from Twitter and GitHub to Moodle and Zamod. I don't know what that is. Uh, it also introduced unified search, so search results for Nextcloud apps, also external services like GitLab, Jira, and Discourse all in one place, which is really cool. They've actually made a massive updates to Nextcloud Talk because Nextcloud Talk used to be kind of like a more of an instant messenger style, similar to kind of Telegram-ish sort of. Uh, it was self-hosted, so only people who are on the instance can have, be a participant of it. But they're now actually kind of turning it, turning into a bigger goal and kind of being a alternative to Slack and even discourse or Discord in a way. So it has um, it has bridging with other platforms too, which is pretty interesting. But first of all, we'll get to that in a second. Dashboard and search integration has been built into the Nextcloud Talk. It also has like a new emoji picker, uh, has an up new new upload view. It has micro it allows you to do control of settings like camera and microphone and a bunch of other stuff. But they added some support for uh, bridging between Microsoft Teams, Slack, IRC, Matrix, and a bunch of others. And they've also done upgrades to the notification and activity system because they've consolidated those together. So now it's in one uh, one field. They've also made an, uh, updates to the account status, making it possible for other users to see whether you're online or not, which is nice. They've also done some upgrades to the calendar as it now integrates with the dashboard and the search, which is very convenient. I really like that, uh, that improvement. Uh, they've also done some improvements to the mail app as well as the deck uh, add-on, which by the way, if you don't know what deck is, we're going to talk about the destination Linux on the next episode, but essentially it's a Kanban board similar to Trello, but it's, it's really nice. And they've done a lot of cool stuff with the latest version because it introduces calendar integration, which is something I've been wanting for a very long time. And now that it's there, I can't wait to try that out. Oh, there is something to notice that the note though. Nextcloud is not known for having the most seamless upgrade path. So if you are already still, if you currently have a Nextcloud instance, keep that in mind that when you do update, there might be some issues, but hopefully there aren't in this particular one. I just haven't done the upgrade yet. So just to keep that in mind, they have not been known in the past to not have the uh, smoothest of upgrades. So be sure to check any upgrade notes that are available in this latest release before you do it just to make sure. But anyway, I am super excited about the this latest release and all the new features, especially with the calendar integration with the deck system. I am really looking forward to trying that out. So if you want to learn more about the Nextcloud 20 release, I'll have links to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Python. So Python 3.9 has been released. If you're not familiar, this is a programming language, which is probably one of the most popular languages just ever because of how easy it is to get started with it. If you're brand new to programming, Python is a great option to get started with. So this latest release adds a new parser. They've based a new parser on a grammar-based system uh, called PEG, and it, instead of using the old top-down parser, which was called LL. Performance is very similar to the like, in this new structure, but the flexibility for PEG is greatly improved, so that's good. Uh, they've also said that the Python 3.9 version will still op give the option to fall back to LL parser using a command line switch or an environmental variable if you choose to do so. However, in the next version of 3.10, that old parser will be deleted. So you still need to change as soon as possible uh, just to keep sure that you have compatibility. And also they've made some new syntax updates where the union operator to dictionary method has been updated, making it easier to perform various implementation methods. 
Also, the type hinting generics in standard collections have been improved, and they've also relaxed the grammar for restrictions on decorators. The new string method of, is available in this latest release of Python 3.9, allows for removal of suffixes and prefixes from strings in an easier method, which is nice. Also, there's a new a library, two new library models, the I. ANA time zone database module zone info is added to the secondary the standard library and an implementation of topological sort of a graph is now provided in the new graph lib module. Also, just a quick note, uh, Fedora 33 will have Python 3.9 as default, which is due in release this month, so I'm looking forward to trying that out. Uh, but also it is worth stating that if you uh, you may want to check it out to make sure that the if you haven't in, if you install Python 3.9 and set it as default, you might want to wait until your distribution does that, such as Fedora doing it, uh, because there could be a bit of a messy transition from setting it up as your default from the previous uh, 3.8, uh, just because of the changes with the parser. So you might want to wait until your distribution actually does it for you, because it'll just make it a lot easier in doing that transition. So uh, check out the latest the latest release for Python 3.9. I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some new interesting news from AMD in that they're reportedly in talks to acquire Xilinx. So Xilinx is a company that does a lot of, they're kind of similar. They're not, in, they're not an overlap. They're not really a competitor, but at the same time, they do similar things. So whereas AMD creates CPUs and GPUs, the company uh, Xilinx, they create uh, other kinds of chips like the FPGA and some others. So this is interesting news because of a variety of reasons. But essentially, if AMD is to pull this off, they will be getting a better position for data centers, embedded markets, telecommunications, automotive, AI, and so much more. And the deal could be worth more than $30 billion. So that's a big number. And this also might help them rival Intel and even be a response. It could be like a potential value response against uh, NVIDIA going for ARM. So there is some potential there. And I think this is really interesting because Xilinx has been around for a long time. And they like, I think 1984, 85, something like that. And they've been doing uh, a lot of um, kind of embedded stuff and the and AI and automotive and uh, telecommunications recently, just a lot more than like, you know, uh, they're they're not a very highly known company, even though they are quite big, which is kind of interesting. And it's also kind of funny because a long time ago, probably like 10 years ago or maybe even longer, there was talks about Xilinx potentially purchasing AMD. And now that it's kind of flipped and where AMD might be purchasing Xilinx. So I think that's interesting. So it's pretty cool. I think that there's a lot of potential for AMD doing it. And I think that AMD is a much different company than it used to be. And I think there's this is actually an interesting strategy of doing portfolio management and that sort of stuff. I think there's a lot of potential because AMD has just changed entirely. Like they used to be uh, confusing why they do certain things. Now they're just, just rocking it, dominating so many different spaces. The CPU space, AMD is just like so dominant. They're even like control. They're like the uh, selected options for, the graphics and the processing of the current generations uh, consoles, like, you know, both Xbox and PlayStation, like AMD is just nailing it recently. And if they were to be able to take that kind of, um, you know, engineering prowess and their improvements of their overall management of their company of AMD, they and apply that to Xilinx, there is a ton of potential that this could be good for both. So um, well, I'll keep you updated about what happens in the future because right now it's just whether it's not even confirmed that they're even going to be doing this. This is more of like 
you know, reported leaks of that there's potential that this might happen. So I just wanted to talk about it because I think it's pretty interesting that, uh, especially since Xilinx almost bought AMD back in the day and now it's reversed. I think it's kind of funny. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links to the, some articles related to this potential, uh, acquisition in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products in the same space. So plus, this is built on their, the new app platform on top of the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, proving providing a, sm- a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the Destination Linux Network community, you can get started for free. Better yet, actually, you can get started with a $100 free credit at DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your free $100 credit and on the new app platform from DigitalOcean. And we want to thank DigitalOcean again for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the some really, really sought after update for the theme support in Snap apps. So there's been a, a couple of attempts to make this for some former solutions like uh, GTK Common Themes Snap, which contained a number of popular GTK themes applied to relevant uh, snaps when it was based on your settings. And it also meant you had to install this uh, you had to install a GTK theme and also the relevant theme snap and of other, some other stuff to get it to work. And they're actually replacing that structure with a new structure that is an automatic theme installation of snaps. When you ins- when you run a snap app that has support for GTK, it will ask you or for a theme, it will prompt you at least in GNOME. I'm not sure how it works in other environments, but in GNOME, it will prompt you for a notification to install it directly. And then you just click this install button and it will install it for you. And then you, once you reload the application, it will apply the settings for whatever GTK theme that you wanted to use, which is pretty cool. Uh, Canonical's Marcus Tomlinson uh, says that whenever you install and apply a new theme to your desktop, a background service will check if its associated theme snap is installed. And if not, it will ask if you would like to install Install it. He says that this is still a work in progress. For example, in its current state, the service uses the SnapD control interface to install themes, uh, theme snaps, which is not ideal, but as you can see, things are coming together nicely so far, which is fantastic. I'm looking forward to this making this coming. The I think that the, one of the, the biggest issues that people have with snaps is the theming is not the best. And in some cases, looks nothing like you your settings when you choose to change the themes. So this is something I'm glad that they're working on this. I know they've been working on it for a while, but this one seems like it has the most potential to be a solution because it makes it a lot easier for users to get uh, get this set up. And also on the uh, discourse forum for Ubuntu, they say that it will uh, it will come to any system that supports SnapD automatically updating itself or via your distro's updates channel, provided they're keeping up to date with the SnapD structure. Both will be after SnapD grows the support, though. So this is very interesting, and I look forward to seeing you know how they address this in other DEs as well as the if they can improve the usability even more so, like it just automatically you know activates it once you do it rather than having to re like 
like close the app and reopen it and that sort of stuff. But I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this. And if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link in the show notes below to this uh, post on the discourse forum from Canonical. Up next in the show is the latest release of GIMP, the image manipulation program. This is a 2.10.22, just rolls right off the tongue. This is released with some a lot of improvements, but mostly it's a bug fix release. Uh, so maintenance and performance improvements, but they have done some uh, updates for features and added some things that I think are quite good. Uh, some things that are like new formats and also some new features that have been you know sought after by a lot of people for a while. So let's just get into the highlights. So first, they've improved the support for HEIC format and added the new AVIF support for the format. Uh, AVIF is a new format that is kind of like an improved uh, structure of uh, kind of like WebP. It's a replacement for WebP and it uses the AV1 uh, structure rather than the uh, VP8 structure. And they've also improved uh, numerous things related to the PSP file format, which if you're not familiar, PSP in this case means uh, PaintShop Pro format. Uh, This is a thing made by Corel, originally JASK. And also another improvement to uh, TIFF supporting, which is TIFF. This is a format that has a lot of good stuff in it, but it also has a, a heavy file size, depending on what kind of content you put into it. But one of the things that it does that's really cool is the ability to have multi-layers that you can save the layers in the same way that you could save a source file. like And... Uh, it has the ability to do better support for the exporting. However, there is something worth noting that some of the features in the TIFF files are not as good as they as they, they you could you'd want them to be. So you probably still don't want to use TIFF for the exporting of the layers because it doesn't keep track of like settings for filters of on to, on those layers. So if you change the opacity of a filter or of a layer, it will not keep track of that. So you might still want to use the default uh, format for that kind of stuff. And there's also better handling of EXIF data, like orientation and stuff like that. Also, the NCLX color profiles and metadata will now be, prop- be properly imported, which is fantastic. And they've also added a new option for sample merged in the uh, GEGL or Geggle operation tool. Sample merged is a thing where when you want to do color picking, it allows you to do more of what is all visible on the screen in the canvas rather than the individual layer that you're using. So it's a uh, sample merged is a very cool thing they've added for the Geggle operation tools. And also they've done something that is very, very cool in terms of the, the, the flag pack version of GIMP and now has extension point for plugins. So it allows for third-party par- plugins to be added as flat pack extensions, which makes it easier to get these extensions inside of GIMP, which is very nice. And there's also improvements to other file formats. So the AVIF as in the, is the variation of the HEIF format, which also has improvements. And there's also a lot of more stuff. It's, a, it's mostly like a bug fix release, but a lot of cool stuff has been added to this one. And I'm happy to see that stuff being done in GIMP. Um, if you're interested in trying out GIMP, I'll have a link in the show notes below for the latest release, as well as the details for what came out in this latest release in there as well. So... Uh, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is an interesting topic because Debian has announced that they're doing a mini DebConf or a mini Debian conference that'll be at the end of another conference later this uh, this this year at November twenty first and twenty second. This is a mini DebConf for a gaming edition that, and they say, why are they doing this? They say recently Debian. Uh, By the way, this is a quote. Recently, Debian and Linux in general has been emerging as a great platform for gaming, not only for playing games, but for creating games too, end quote. 
So the last day, last two days of a four-day wider event will be be dedicated for the mini DevConf. Not exclusively, but the online to gaming edition DevConf is what's happening. There's going to be various sessions happening for people who want to play games, create games, or just generally interested in what Debian can do in the gaming space. So this will be an online event for those who wanted to who contribute to it or participate. Their convention topics in total will have uh, talks to upstream game developers, ga- uh, cover game engines and creation tools, available tools for graphics and music for games, uh, bug fixing, game showcase as well, and a bunch of other stuff like that. So I, it's, it's interesting that they're doing this, but I don't really get why, because they say that recently Debian has been emerging as a great platform for gaming. And uh, really? Uh, I've doesn't seem that doesn't make sense to me because de- gaming is very important in terms of getting up to date hardware and support and stuff like that. And Debian is not known for that at all up to date, really anything because you know, the Debian stable has an update mechanism of roughly three to four years. Is that's how the usual big state, big changes to the kernels and stuff like that happen. So I it just doesn't make any, it just does not compute for me that Debian would be doing anything gaming related. Uh, but I am curious to see what happens here. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there is some kind of like gaming addition that they're going to be doing for Debian or something like that. I don't know, but it doesn't really make sense to me. Maybe I'm missing something. If I am, please let me know in the comments below or on the forum for this particular episode, because I am very curious to see what happens with this. So Links for this announcement in the show notes below. Up next in the show is an interesting topic because I am both interested and torn for this topic. So Kubuntu Focus is a Linux-based laptop. This is the second generation of the Kubuntu Focus. This is called the M2, which I think means Mark II. Uh, I couldn't find a clarification for that exactly, but that's what I think it means. And this comes with Kubuntu 2004 LTS Focal Fossa pre-installed on this laptop. Now, the to get more, we'll get to more details later on. But I wanted to cover the fact that I'm a little bit torn on this because it's 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 Kubuntu. Not Kubuntu does not make this laptop, and they do not uh, you know prov- you're not buying it from Kubuntu. This is a laptop that has been given permission from the Kubuntu project to use the Kubuntu name and the Kubuntu branding. And also, this is laptops. Uh, this hardware is from Tuxedo Computers, but you're not actually purchasing it from Tuxedo Computers. When you go to the Kubuntu Focus website, it's actually a different company that is you're purchasing it, purchasing it from. Tuxedo Computers just happens to be the source of those that laptop. Some of the marketing in this laptop is kind of weird. Some of the decisions made by the company who's selling the laptop is kind of weird. But let's talk about the hardware first. And then we'll move on to the issues that makes me torn about it. So first of all, the hardware specs say uh, this will have a 10th gen Intel Core i7-10875H processor with two, eight cores and 16 threads, a 2.3 gigahertz base with a 5.1 gigahertz uh, turbo, and up to 64 gigs of RAM, uh, up to four terabytes of NVMe storage available. The display will have a 15 by 6 inch IPS 144 hertz refresh rate, and it will come with three options of the uh, the NVIDIA RTX GeForce GPUs, which are RTX 2060, 2070, and 2080. The 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi 6 is also compatible with support up to AX wireless, and it has support for HDMI and mini DisplayPort 
for connecting up to two 4K monitors, as well as USB-C with Thunderbolt 3, which means that you have support for an external graphics card if for some reason you wanted to have both an RTX and an external. Uh, it also has gigabit Ethernet, of course, and Bluetooth built into it. It also has a card reader built into it, so that's interesting. Uh, but at the same time, now this is not against the hardware itself. I actually did get a chance to kind of test run the first generation of this laptop. And I had a video on this about the unboxing of it for my first impressions and that sort of stuff. And it is an interesting thing because the hardware itself is pretty impressive and very powerful and that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's why I'm torn. The hardware itself is good. The software of Kubuntu, the project, is good. And you would assume the com combination of those things would create something good as well. But there is a lot of changes that were done for some reason that makes this kind of a problematic situation. And that's the reason I'm torn. So, for example, when you go and look out, I'm going to give you an example. This is what, if you're in the video version, uh, in the audio version, sorry, I'll have links in the show notes for like demonstrations of what I'm talking about. But uh, in the video version, you'll see that now I am showing a desktop edition of Kubuntu and what it looks like. And it's the normal Kubuntu that you expect, right? So if you're familiar with Kubuntu at all, you would expect it to look like this. This is what the Kubuntu Focus desktop looks like, and it's completely different. It's weird because the only, to me, the only thing that shows Kubuntu is the name and the logo. Everything else is different, it seems. So instead of having the bottom panel with like the Windows style paradigm with the start menu on the left and the clock on the right, it has a vertical right side panel that has the, the start menu on the top right and the clock right underneath that. And then it has icons in the middle and a system tray at the bottom. It's just, it's very different. So it's weird because to me, it comes off as the Kubuntu focus lost focus of Kubuntu. Because to me, Kubuntu, a Kubuntu laptop should be promoting and celebrating Kubuntu. And this doesn't seem to be doing that. This seems to be trying to make its own thing, just using Kubuntu as the base to make it. Which, I mean, fair enough if people want to do that, but if you want to do that, just don't brand it as Kubuntu. Call it something else, whatever you want. It's fine that you want to make your own edition, your own version, but you shouldn't use the brand, in my opinion, that if it's not anything, it doesn't look anything like the brand itself, you know? But in terms of hardware, I think that the hardware has a lot of potential. In terms of the Kubuntu distro itself, also, very good distro for a out of the box experience on a laptop, you know, conceptually. But in this case, it's kind of odd that what happened or what has been done with this structure. There are some cool things in the sense that they say once you order it, they sh they they build it that day and ship it the next day. Like that's kind of impressive. I don't know how that functionality, how they do that in terms of like efficiency and whatnot. But that's kind of cool. They also do they do also offer live support for the hardware and software, which is that's nice. But to me, Kubuntu Focus laptop should have a focus on Kubuntu, and I don't think this hits that at all. So I'm torn because I think Kubuntu's fantastic. I think Tuxedo Computers makes good computers, and their hardware that I played with on the first edition of this was pretty impressive, but there's a bit of a weird wonkiness of, in my opinion anyway, that if you're going to have something called Kubuntu Focus, you should definitely focus on Kubuntu. Anyway, if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the K-Focus website um, in the show notes below. 
Before we get started with this topic, I want to just give a clarification that I am not a lawyer and this is not legal advice. This is just an opinion based on the facts related to the case and my interpretation. Up next in the show is a topic that everybody loves, and that's legal news. We're going to talk about lawsuits from Google versus Oracle, and that is actually going to be heard by the Supreme Court. It's actually already been heard, and we have some updates related to what happened. And, uh, well, potentially, this is, this is a high-stakes case. The reason we're talking about it is because of how high the stakes are. Now, yes, there's also a lot of money involved. Google would owe billions of dollars in damages if Oracle wins. But more importantly is that if Oracle wins, they will reshape how copyright law treats APIs and essentially destroying the entire industry of software development because of how APIs have worked for the past 30 years. It will basically give incumbents the power to lock out competitors who want to build compatible software with their existing software. So the fact that this even got to the Supreme Court is pretty insane to me. And the fact that there's even a question of whether or not they're going to throw this out is sad. So we'll get to that in a second. The Electronic Frontier Foundation states that allowing copyright on APIs is a terrible idea for computer science. And that's because almost all modern software depends on APIs. When your web browser works with Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, really any complex site, it, it communicates through APIs. When your so smartphone shows you wet the weather directions to your like to different destinations or a video, it uses APIs to bridge the gap between services and servers and your devices. So this is a very important uh, topic that could have catastrophic outcomes if this ends the wrong way. Because there is only one right way, and while I don't like Google, the answer to the the whether Google or Oracle should win, the answer is Google, because one it protects APIs and the other one basically destroys the software industry. This is a widespread practice of using APIs in software industries, including Oracle, who re-implemented Amazon's S3 API so that customers who built software for Amazon's cloud platform could easily switch to Oracle's rival cloud platform. You see how this is a problem, Oracle? And also, it's uh, this this debate that they happened on the Supreme Court is kind of like a minefield of analogies. There has been ridiculous analogies. For example, one of the justices compared it to copying a song, and that's not what this is, because copying a song is the whole composition of the completed song. That is what can be copyrighted, not individual pieces that make up the song. So this is more along the lines of the individual pieces, but still not really even that. Another um, analogy that was given was a football team make, taking a rival's playbook. No, that's also not. It's it's like the concepts of the different types of defenses that you could then manipulate things into doing what you wanted to do. That's more close to it. Still, not even a good analogy there either. The better analogy probably, it's not really even an analogy, just a more simplified explanation of what it is, is like digital forms on websites. You fill out these forms, you send the data, something happens from that data, whatnot, that kind of thing. That's more like what an API is doing. You're essentially doing it. It's more a complicated structure, but that's essentially what it is. So they're trying to say that theoretically in a way that you can copyright forms as a concept. That is just, no, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Let, let's, another example would be like um, a, a judge from a previous part of the trial or the cases like from the lower courts said that uh, he compared it to a QWERTY keyboard, for example, like the layout of the QWERTY keyboard. If someone were to own that layout, they would essentially just 
destroy the usability of the commuter computer market because everybody's used to that layout in at least in North America. So it's like it's that's a good analogy in comparison. But as far as like what could happen, it's not the same kind of thing, but it's a it's a very, uh, very apt comparison about what the how bad it could be, because if every company had to make different layouts for each keyboard and also retroactively violate things like this would retroactively violate so much in the software industry that there would be copyright trolls just everywhere from how massively complicated this would become. So please, please don't do this. Anyway, so the history of this topic is that in 2014, a jury decided APIs couldn't be copyrighted. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for Federal Circuit, or the CAFC, decided to overrule the jury and awarded Oracle the victory. For reasons. Then in 2016, another jury ruled that even if the APIs could be copyrighted, Google still had the right to use them under fair use. Again, the CAFC overruled the jury. So the University of South Carolina intellectual property law professor Ned Snow pointed out the CAFC ruling, which had awarded victory to Oracle, violated the Constitution's Seventh Amendment. So specifically, Snow stated that the reversal of a jury verdict on the issue of fair use is extraordinarily rare. For two centuries, courts have given great dif- difference for uh, two jury verdicts. Instead, history overwhelmingly demonstrates that juries are uniquely situated to make a discretionary judgments that fair use cases call for. But in this case, the federal circuit ignored history along with the law. It applied a de novo review. I don't know what that means to overturn the j- jury verdict of fair use. This is the first time that has ever happened and it is unconstitutional. Snow also goes on to say that the amendment provides that no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law, and disagreeing with how the judge views fair use does not rise to the level where the court can re-examine, never mind overrule its decisions. Then we're going to fast forward from 2016 to now, where Ars Technica stated that Google's Supreme Court face-off with Oracle was a disaster for Google and theoretically the software industry. It seems that the lawyer arguing the case for Google didn't understand the topic that they were arguing, or at least not well enough to explain it to other people who also don't understand the topic. So that's a weird problem to have that we apparently do. So uh, Mike Linksveyer, I think that's how you say that name, the GitHub's head of developer policy and former CTO of Creative Commons, has had this to say about the topic, Google versus Oracle will shape developer opportunity and software innovation for years to come. If the court does not uphold the right of developers to re-implement APIs, the ability of developers to transfer their skills of startups to or and startups to innovate without interference from incumbents and of consumers to b- benefit from competition and innovation will all be harmed. Software development is hugely valuable and would carry on, but with a wholly unnecessary burden of increased attention to licensing and fighting API copyright trolls. Only lawyers will benefit, and the reputation of the U.S. as a jurisdiction friendly to entrepreneurship and innovation will will take a hit. So that's an interesting point um, because he's right. It will continue, but at the same time, in a very, very complicated way that people will not want to even participate. So hopefully... This doesn't happen. If SCOTUS rules correctly, it would set a precedent that means software development standards will be stronger than before. But if they deem it copyrightable, which again, they shouldn't, then they would upheave the entire fabric of modern software development. Let's hope they don't screw this up, I guess. 
If you want to learn more about this, I'll have links to some various uh, articles related to this topic in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel and This Week in Linux podcast, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to the DLN store by going to dlnstore.com. This is a shirt that I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know that Linux is there, it probably is, which is why it has Tux blended into the background to em- emphasize that. We also have ways to contribute at any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you want some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show, as well as the Hardware Addicts podcast, as I'm a co-host of that show as well. So, and also be sure this is just a reminder if you're not aware that we do this show live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. And the show is a global show, so with people watching all around the world. And if you'll find a link in the description and in the show notes that has a link for the time zone converter, so it'll help you find out what the time is in your area. So thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.